Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 5. This morning we'll be covering uh, chapter 5 and 6. Before we begin uh, this study, I want to share my heart on what took place in Charleston, uh, South Carolina uh, this week. Uh, extremely heartbreaking, you know, to hear the news Wednesday morning, uh, starting your day. Uh, it's probably when you heard of this shooting that took place. And a couple things come to mind. First, one is I think that this church uh, is doing an, an amazing job at sharing uh, the message of Jesus Christ in the midst of this tragedy. I don't know if you've seen the images uh, where we have uh, the shooter is a, in a small room with a couple well-armed police officers behind him, and then the family members are in a courtroom with a judge, and they're having opportunity to address this young man, and they're saying things like, my family and I choose to forgive you, and then calling this young man to repent and confess Christ. You know, they're, they're displaying and sharing the gospel in the midst of such a horrific tragedy, and I'm just blown away. It's just amazing uh, to me that they're, they're doing that, and it's phenomenal. And this morning, they're meeting. They're having church this morning, and how difficult that must mean for them to, to gather during their normal service times. And we're going to pray for them and pray that God would comfort them and meet them in a, in a powerful way, that much salvation would come out of this evil and come out of this tragedy. And the other thing that comes to mind is, how are you responding? How am I responding? It, it provokes things in us when we see this inside of a church and we think of, of our own church. And if fear has been your response, if fear has been, been my response, I would encourage you to not allow that to settle in because that's not God's heart. God says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so if you're starting to feel that sense of fear and it's starting to overwhelm you to determine in your heart and your mind saying, I'm not going to walk in fear. Church, God doesn't want us to walk in fear. He wants us to trust him. And as we do live in an evil world to say, I'm going to be more committed to Jesus Christ. I'm going to be more committed to living out the life that he would have for me and sharing the message of Jesus Christ. But don't let the fear of men, the fear of violence, keep you from the house of God. I'm praying for our nation this morning. I'm praying that churches would be packed, not for the sake of being packed, but just as we sang in worship, that there would be a revival, that there would be a turning back uh, to, to the Lord. You know, very practically for us as a church family, we do have a great security team, which we're very thankful for. Uh, it is needed in our day and age. It, it is something that we take seriously. If you have a background in law enforcement and you'd like to volunteer with that, uh, you can fill out a, a volunteer application. So that, that's needed in our day, day and age. But we don't trust in our security team. We trust in the Lord. Amen? So as we go to the word this morning, let's, let's pray for the church in uh, South Carolina. Father, we lift up this church in Charleston to you. Lord, we're humbled by their response. We're humbled by the fact that they can offer forgiveness, and we know that that comes from you. And God, I pray that you would meet them in a special way, that Jesus, you would manifest your presence, that you would comfort, that you would give their leadership real wisdom and the words to say. We know that this morning they'll be the megaphone throughout the world, and we pray that the message of Christ would go out. Father, we pray for our hearts that we wouldn't come to a place of fear, Lord, that we wouldn't be overcome by evil, but we would overcome evil with good. We ask that you would bless the study, Lord, that you'd really speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's quickly review where we've been in 1 Samuel so far, as we've seen God raising up a young man named Samuel to be the prophet, to hear the word of God, to declare the word of God. Also, we see God judging the house of Eli. Eli had allowed his sons to run wild, quite literally, as priests in the tabernacle, so God brings about judgment upon Eli, his two sons, they die in one day. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. That's where we pick up our study this morning, and our theme for these two chapters that we're going to look at is that there's none comparable. There's none comparable to the Lord. As the Ark of the Covenant is brought alongside the pagan god Dagon, God shows his supremacy over these false gods. You think about this statement, none comparable, and if you were to think of it on a human level in the sports world, there's really been none comparable to Michael Jordan as a basketball athlete. No one has come close to accomplishing the things that he was able to do. He could single-handedly win a game and, and win national titles. Tiger Woods, when he was at his prime, there was none comparable. As a young man, when he came on the scene, he dominated uh, the world of golf. You think in the world of finances, Warren Buffett comes to mind. You know, he's one that kind of rises above uh, the rest. When it comes to the tech sector, whether you like it or not, history's gonna look back at Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and they changed the world. There's, there's none comparable. Our lives are different today because of the breakthroughs that they made. But those things can't even be compared to how far out in front God is from us and from false gods. There's really none comparable to the Lord. And we're gonna see that as we go through these chapters this morning. So let's look at verse one of chapter five. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They've captured the ark of God. They're bringing it into Philistine territory. Though the ark is captured, God is not captured. God's not limited to a box. And though this box represents his presence, he's very gonna clearly show that he's captive to no one. In verse two, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. The Philistine god Dagon was half man and half fish. It was a statue that they worshiped, an idol that they worshiped. The Philistines were a, a seafaring people on the Mediterranean, there in this region that we know to be Israel today. And so they worshiped fish. Fish had such a big part of their life, they incorporated it into their worship. History says that Dagon was the father of Baal. If you study the Old Testament, you see Baal worship coming again and again. When they capture the Ark of the Covenant, they bring the Ark of the Covenant alongside of Dagon. Looking at the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy, we've taken the God of the Philistines, and how many times do we take the one true living God and want to bring him alongside of our idols? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm into God. I'm, I'm in the, into the Bible. I'm into the things of the Lord, and, and I'll just bring him alongside of everything else that I've got in my life. The love of money, the love of pleasure, pride. You know, we've got our idols that we serve today. We haven't outgrown I, idolatry. Behind these idols was a philosophy and a, and a way of living. And so that's exactly what they do. They, they bring their God alongside of the one true uh, living God. And Isaiah 40, verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? Who can you really liken to God? Can you put these idols in the same category as the Lord? Verse 3 
And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Don't you love that? God says, I don't think so. I'm going to show my supremacy. Dagon falls upon his face, showing submission, so showing reverence. God showing his supremacy. David Guzik in his commentary says this, God will glorify himself. Sometimes when men disgrace the glory of God, we fear God will go without glory. We think glory has departed. But when men and women will not glorify God, God will glorify himself. You can count on it. Israel's not glorifying God. The corruption's coming from the very place where there should be worship, from the tabernacle. God deals with that and he judges Israel, but now he's saying, I'm taking on the business of glorifying myself. And we need to be reminded, God wants us to glorify him. He wants us to glorify him in our body with our whole entire being. But if we don't do our part, it doesn't mean that God won't be glorified. It doesn't mean that God will not achieve glory, and he's going to do it all on his own, and he levels Dagon here. There's a couple other simple things that I would hate for us to miss, miss here, is if your God can fall down, you've got the wrong God. This is the big deal for the Philistines. I mean, Dagon's the, the big cheese, you know, he's, he's the one that they worship, and they walk in, and he's, he's laying on the ground. And we know that intellectually, but how many times do we choose a God that can fall down, that does fall down sometimes? Maybe your God's your job. Well, then what happens when you lose your job? Maybe your God is your home. What happens when your home burns down? What happens when you can't make the mortgage payment and, and you lose your home? Maybe your God's a relationship. What if that relationship ends? What if that person passes away and your God has fallen down? Maybe your Worship is your identity, but then all of a sudden your identity falls flat upon its face. Your accomplishments, your education, the list goes on and on, but we sometimes pick a God that can fall down and we have the wrong God. The other very simple thing is, is if you have to prop up your God, you have the wrong God. Agreed? He, he's fallen. He's like, I've fallen and I can't get up. You know, if, you're, if your God is expressing that uh, to you and you have to go and, and rescue him and prop him up, but we're comforted in having a God that we can prop up because it means that we're in control. Ultimately, this is worship of self. Instead of having to submit to a God that demands that we surrender to him, we'll choose a God that we know is not the one true living God, but we can prop up and we think that we can control. In verse four, and when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold as you would enter into the temple. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. So now they walk in and maybe the priests, these false priests at this point, they're like, Dagon it? <laughs> He's fallen again, you know? My Dagon God, there he is, you know? <laughs> How frustrating is this? Now his head's fallen off and and his hands have, have fallen off. Or maybe they look to each other and said, hmm, this is a little bit fishy. <laughs> half man, half God, and now the, only the fish part to, is there. God is really showing how much that he is in control in this particular situation. Why the head 
and why the hands. The head is the seat of wisdom, and the hands is the instrument of action. God is showing by knocking off Dagon's head and his hands that he's actually powerless, that there's nothing that this idol can do. And this is the nature of idols. Psalms 115, I'll read it to you, says this. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is every one who trusts in them. Did you catch that last part? Everyone who trusts in idols will become like them. Be careful what you worship. Be careful what God you choose because you will become like what you worship. Continuing on into verse 5, Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. This is ironic because you would think at this point they would realize the God of the Hebrews is the one true living God that they would forsake the worship of Dagon, but instead they memorialize Dagon's failure. His hands were there at the threshold. His head was there at the threshold. They cleaned that up, but every time that anybody came into the temple, they said, don't, don't step on the threshold. You know, don't, don't step on that because this is, this is sacred. And so many times we see God trying to get people's attention, but instead of turning to the Lord, they push God away and they make something sacred that should not be sacred at all. In verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. God is creative. He's going to get the attention of this Philistine city, so he strikes the people with tumors. The old King James actually translated this as hemorrhoids. If you have a King James Version, you can see that that's listed there because of the root that we find in the, the Hebrew word. And that is a possibility that they got struck with hemorrhoids. If that's the case, that is extremely humorous. And God, God is uh, going to get a hold of the seat of learning quite literally here. <laughs> Also, some estimate that there is some tie-in to the bubonic plague, because we'll see in chapter 6 that there were rats, a plague of rats as well, that re resulted in death. But we know certainly that there's a combination of tumors and rats to get the attention of the Philistine people. In verse 7, And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon, our God. They could have turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, but instead, they want to push God out. They say, so we don't want the Ark of the Covenant here. We don't want God, God's presence in our lives. In verse 8, Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the Ark the ark of the God of Israel. And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried away the ark of God of Israel away. Verse nine, so it was after they carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with, great, with very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out. 
So they send the Ark of the Covenant to the next major Philistine city. There's five major cities, and the same thing happens. The same thing takes place. There's an outbreak of of tumors now in Gath. And so verse 10, Therefore they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. So it was, as the Ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the Ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and to our people. Get, Get this trouble out of here. And this is the response of these first three cities, is just get God out of here. Get the Ark of the Covenant out of here. We don't want God's presence in our lives. In verse 11 and 12, So they sent and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it doesn't kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This morning, if God's hand is upon you, and you feel God's presence, and you feel the Lord maybe convicting of sin, or you feel God calling you by name, saying, this is your day to believe in Christ, to become the child of God, why would you push God's presence out of your life? There could be a very different response to this. God's intent and heart was to bring them to repentance, to bring them them back to the Lord. I think what's challenging with these two chapters is every group of people that we're exposed to, including the Israelites, don't want God's presence in their life. We'll find in chapter 6 that we're going to read in just a moment that ultimately the Israelites have the same response. They're going to get the Ark of the Covenant back. But instead, they say, no, we don't want the Ark of the Covenant in Beth Shemesh. We're going to move this on to to another city. And how many times do we do that with the relationship with the Lord? God's present. He wants to be present in our lives. He's pursuing relationship with us. But we say, no, I'll have Dagon. I'll take my broken idol instead. I I don't want to turn to the Lord. I'm going to push God. I'm going to try to push God out of my life and not acknowledge his presence. So chapter 6. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. This is a long time of distress to not deal with it. Why were they so slow to return the ark of the covenant to the Israelites? Because the ark of the covenant was their trophy. The ark of the covenant was their prize. We've defeated the Israelites, and they weren't quick to want to release this back. In verse 2, And the Philistines called for the priests... And the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. This would be the priests of the temple of Dagon. These false priests, they gather them together saying, how should we send the ark back? Verse 3, so they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, then you will be healed and it'll be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. They intuitively knew that they had offended God by this judgment that they had received. So when they send the ark back, they're saying, you must send it back with a trespass offering. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So they're going to send the Ark of the Covenant back with five golden tumors and five golden rats. You ever get one of those gifts 
That, oh, by the way, happy Father's Day, guys. I should have said that sooner. Happy Father's Day. You know, maybe you're going to get one of those gifts today where you're like, hmm, I tend to wear all my emotion on my face. You know, it's like I can't hide things very well. So if I get one of those gifts inside, I'm going, be polite, you know, present excitement. But everything else about me is going, five golden tumors. Hmm. This could make some nice bookends. Yeah. If indeed these tumors were hemorrhoids, these are really interesting <laughs> golden, golden hemorrhoids that, that are here. And oh, wow, five, five golden rats. That, that, that's very nice of you. The reason that they gave the tumors and the rats is because of what they symbolized in verse 5. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. So we know that tumors and rats brought about destruction. Thus the golden rats and the golden tumors. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Verse 6 is important. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? They knew their history. They knew what God had done to the Egyptians. They knew had Pharaoh had hardened his heart. Pharaoh didn't want to let the Israelites go. Let them leave as, as slaves. They're saying, we don't want to make the same mistake and refuse to let the Ark of the Covenant go. Church, it always comes back to the heart and the condition of our heart. And it is a very humbling and sobering thing to harden our hearts before God. And God's saying, let something go, let it go. And as believers, we can harden our hearts. And God boils down our relationship with him is love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have you given your heart to the Lord today? Is your heart soft before the Lord? What keeps the word of God from penetrating a life and bringing forth fruit? One of the things is a hard heart. The heart has become hard. The heart's not soft. The heart's not open. And the Philistines, they understand this. This pagan group of people that's running away from God, they're saying, we don't want to harden our hearts. We need to let the Ark of the Covenant go. In verse 7, now therefore make a new cart, Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the ark, and take their calves home away from them. So these cows, these female cows, they have calves. They've never been yoked before. They're going to be the ones to carry the ark of the covenant with a cart. They're going to take their calves and put their calves back at home for, for a purpose. Let's look at verse 8. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side, then send it away and let it go. The Philistines know better than to open up the Ark of the Covenant. They put the tumors and the rats in a chest next to the Ark of the Covenant. In verse 9, And watch if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by chance. What would be the natural instinct of these female cows? They would want to go back to their calves. Their calves are locked up in the barn. They wouldn't make their way to Beth Shemesh. They would return home. So if these cows go to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, 
they know that these plagues have come by the hand of God. Verse 10, then the men did so. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the ark and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and didn't, did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. God shows his power to override the instinctive nature of these cows. They're lowing as they go to show, I don't like this idea. I don't like the fact that I'm leaving my calves behind, but yet they went right to Beth Shemesh, showing God's hand on these two female cows. In verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. It's a normal day of harvest for them. A joyous time of year, May to June. They're taking the harvest in, and all of a sudden, they see these two cows. No one's driving the cows. They're coming on their own. Is that what I think it is? That's the Ark of the Covenant. Notice God brings back the Ark of the Covenant with no effort from the Israelites. God's saying, this is my doing. I've done this supernaturally. I'm, again, glorifying myself. They rejoiced to see it. In verse 14, Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. They're right in taking down the Ark of the Covenant. God had instructed them to transport it with the poles on the side, with rings that were on the side of the Ark of the Covenant to not, to not handle it, that the Levites were to do this. You definitely understand the heart of worship here to do the burnt offerings unto the Lord, these two female cows. However, God said in Leviticus that the burnt offerings were only to be bulls, only to be male cows. And why I think that's important is because what we read in these next few verses is they're not taking seriously the word of God. They're not taking seriously what God has commanded and the way that God has prescribed for them to worship. So verse 16, so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. I wonder what these five lords thought. They're watching God work in front of their very eyes. We don't have the reaction, but we know that they witnessed the work of God. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, and one for Gath, and one for Ekron, their major cities. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So this large stone would serve as a memorial of this particular event. Brace yourself for verse 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. 
They struck 50,000, he struck 50,000 and 70 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. They decide to lift the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, open inside. Why would they want to look inside? In Numbers chapter 4, God says very specifically not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. They're violating God's command. I think they were probably curious to see if the Philistines had taken what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. We know the Ten Commandments were inside of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, God's contract with the nation of Israel. How many times do we get ourselves into real trouble with sin simply because we're curious? I'm just curious. You know, everybody says this pan's hot, but I really have to find out if it's hot. Are they really telling me the truth? Now, how many people just learn from you telling them, look, it's hot. At some point, you've, you've got to touch it, right? How many times do believers get themselves in a place of compromise and death ultimately that results in their lives, spiritual death? Well, I'm just curious. I wonder what it would be like. Here I am. I've been committed to my spouse for, for so long. I wonder what it would really be like if I just ventured outside of that. It'll be death. It'll be absolute death. I grew up in a Christian home. I was born on a Sunday. From what I understand, the next Sunday I was in church as a seven-day-old. When the church was open, we were there, went to a Christian school, and I didn't always appreciate it. About middle school, high school time frame, I'm starting to think, man, it sure seems like everybody's having fun but me. All these rules, you can't do this, you can't do that, and I started to get curious started to think that there was something out there there for me. And I almost got into a whole bunch of trouble simply based on this principle of curiosity. And thankfully, God got a hold of my heart before I had too many opportunities to walk down that, that avenue. Maybe you find yourself just a little bit curious. You're thinking, well, what really does happen downtown at, at one in the morning? I can tell you what happens downtown at one in the morning without going. Nothing good. Go to bed at one in the morning. And then get up Saturday morning and get in the word and spend time with the Lord and spend time, time in prayer and allow God to, to meet you in that way. There's nothing good there. Maybe you think back to your party days and, oh man, college time was so good and I had so much fun and Christians are just such fuddy-duddies, you know. I get together with Christians and we drink coffee. Woohoo, coffee, you know. It's like, I remember the good old days when I would party. You don't remember the hangover correctly. How fun was the toilet experience? How fun was it, you know, ralphing up all over the floor and banging into the walls? You're not missing anything, amen? And so let's kill that curiosity. I think a lot of this is curiosity resulted. They opened the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and then 50,070 men died. Now I noticed as we read this that some of you are looking at your Bible and saying, my translation doesn't say 50,070. I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you're reading from a version like NIV, there's some discrepancy here. Is it 70 or is it 50,070? And some translators have translated it as 50,000. Some have translated it as 70 men. I personally lean towards the 50,070 because of the end of verse 19. It says, the Lord struck the people with a great slaughter. If you go back to last week's study, how many died in that battle? 4,000, then 30,000, 
So if 70 men died at, at this point, that's not a great slaughter compared to just prior, there was 30,000 that died. There was 4,000 that died. Some look at this and go, well, there wasn't 50,000 people in, in Beth Shemesh. But Israel's a pretty small area geographically, and word traveling that the Ark of the Covenant was there, people would flock to this place. This isn't just the people living there. Some time goes by, they had time to offer up these female cows to the Lord. So personally, I lean to the 50,070, but the point is, is the holiness of God and then not valuing what the Lord had said. Now notice their response in verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God and to whom shall it go up from us? This is ultimately expression for the need of Jesus. How could we stand before a holy God? How could we be allowed into his presence? Remember, as we studied the book of Hebrews, God welcomes us to come boldly to his throne room of grace, to the Holy of Holies. How can God welcome us in? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ, we would experience the same kind of judgment from God. The only reason we don't experience this kind of judgment from God is because of what Christ has done for us and our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 so they sent their messengers to the inhabitants of Kirath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with them. Beth Shemesh says, we don't want the ark of the covenant. We don't want the presence of God here. Take it to Kirath-Jerim. It'll stay in Kirath-Jerim for 70 years until David restores the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place of worship. Worship is altered in the land of Israel because of this event. Three Philistine cities, one Israelite city says, we don't want the presence of God. Do you want the presence of God? Do you want the presence of God in your life? Is God's presence welcome in my heart? Am I willing for God's presence to cause the idols to fall? Or am I more attached to the idols? I'll take Dagon. I'll take this broken idol instead of the Lord. A few things to consider from this chapter. God doesn't need an ad advocate. He's able to defend himself. The ark was captured, but he was not. God is sufficient to glorify himself. We need to be reminded of that. The power of God's presence in our lives. He makes the idols fall. Is there a struggle that you have in your life, sin-wise, they just seem to not be able to have victory. The more you focus on the sin, the more failure that comes in is welcome the presence of God in. Instead of focusing on the sin, focus on fellowship with God, time in the word, time in prayer, worship, communion, and you'll find after drawing near to the Lord, you realize the Dagon has fallen. How did that happen? The power of bringing God's presence into my life. I think this will set us free how did Dagon fall? Not by cursing Dagon, but by welcoming the presence of God. How does the darkness flee from our lives? You don't curse the darkness, you turn on the light. How do you turn on the light? You walk with Jesus Christ. I'm gonna start my day with him. I'm gonna end my day with him. I'm gonna fellowship with him when I'm driving in the car. I'm gonna abide in the vine, worship and prayer and adoration for Jesus Christ. And then we go, oh, there's victory in my life. God call, caused the Dagon to fall. And then finally, we see the holiness of God. It's a clear display in this chapter of the holiness of God.
Would you stand with me and let's pray together? Father, as we make our way this morning, we ask that you would bring application in our lives. And Father, we want to welcome your presence in our lives. Holy Spirit, we want to welcome your presence in our lives. We don't want to be like the Philistines. We don't want to be like the Israelites that push out the presence of God. And we welcome you here with us. God, would you do your work in our lives as we sing this last song and we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.